I'm Joanne Silberner, a features editor at the BMJ. I've been covering health and medicine for nearly four decades. You're listening to one of four podcasts we are producing about COVID-19 in the U.S. This episode, though, is not about politics or history. (laughs) Do you need me to blow your belly? We're looking at the experiences of an American doctor. She's a neurologist in training and also a new mom. She just came back to full-time work in a large teaching hospital June 1st in the middle of the pandemic. What's life like for her? And what have the well-known problems with the supply of gowns and masks and hand sanitizer meant to her? Dr. Adeline Goss is four years out of medical school and is in her last stage of residency. She joins us on her first weekend off in two weeks. It's late afternoon California time, but between her job as a mom and her job at the hospital, it's been tough to find a good time for this. So thanks for joining us, Abby. Great to be here, Joanne. Thanks. I want to explain to our audience a little about the American system of training doctors. After four years of medical school, there are anywhere from three to seven years of residency. At a year in your fourth year of residency, and you just wrote a piece for the BMJ that focused on doctors who were just about to start residency in the age of COVID. And you noted that when they started medical school, they didn't know they were signing up for this. But you didn't either. When you were in their shoes, when you were just starting your residency, what was your biggest fear? Probably my biggest fear was that I didn't know enough medicine to take care of my patients and that I would make a mistake that would actually hurt somebody. But I think even then, at the beginning of residency, there was a concern about trying to balance the personal and the work aspects of my life. I had just gotten married a few weeks before starting residency, and then I was going to take off into the hospital and be away from my husband for 80 hours or more every week. So balancing those two has been a part of this process all along. And then COVID-19 comes along as you're coming back from your maternity leave. So what are your biggest concerns now? I mean, I still have concern about taking good care of my patients, uh, but I feel more confident about that now. I think my biggest worry has been that I'll bring this virus home to the people I love the most, my husband, Paul, my son, Olive, who's now four months old. And we're also spending time with my parents who are both in their 70s. And my family, especially my husband, has done so much to support me to become a doctor. And I just hate to think that they would get sick because of exposures at my work. Now, before you went back, you made a list of all the things you were going to bring with you when you went back to the hospital. What's on that list? Well, uh, it's divided up into a bunch of categories. There's the prep ahead of work category, the what to wear to the hospital and not to wear Uh, what to do at the hospital, what to do during my shift, and then how to leave the hospital safely. So, for example, the prep ahead category includes these items. Put my cell phone in a plastic Ziploc. Bring bars that I can eat by only touching the wrapper. Pack my fanny pack with all of my neurology tools, my reflex hammer and tuning fork and, um, you know, things we use for work. And then put my breast pump and a variety of small breast pump bottles and a giant Nalgene for milk into a cooler bag that I'll carry into the hospital. And then I have this invention called a commuter paper bag where I put a bunch of items that are going to go into the hospital and then come out again that I have to keep clean. So what sort of things go into that? 
Um, so that's my ID badge that I wear and, you know, announce myself within the hospital and I have to wear it just, you know, in order to pass through the hospital's doors in the morning. Um, my cell phone, which is encased inside the Ziploc bag. Oh, and then the, uh, the clothes that I'm going to wear in and out of the hospital. And so you sat down before you went back and you made a list. Why, why'd you sit down and make a list? Well, it's, it's kind of hard to think about this now. It's been a minute, but um, the months leading up to returning to work were just such a crazy whirlwind. I, I gave birth to my son a month early. Um, and so in February and March, early March, we were still in that stage of parenthood where you're trying to protect your kid from getting a fever because their immune system is young. And so we were having everybody wash their hands and limiting who was coming into our house for that reason. And then that just sort of transitioned seamlessly into the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and we had been basically, you know, by the time I returned to work in May, living in a bubble uh, with very limited exposures uh, from, you know, other people. We didn't go to the grocery store. Even going to the post office was a big ordeal with a lot of Purell involved. So I had been in this really privileged position of being isolated and, and almost perfectly safe from this virus until the moment that I returned to work. And then it was just like popping a bubble. So you made a list and you went back into work. And Hattie, you worked in radio for a decade. And in the last few months, you've been documenting your experiences on tape. And I'd like to listen together with our podcast audience to some of that tape you recorded. So here's a clip from an interview your husband did with you about going to the hospital. The minute I got into the car and was driving to the hospital, it was like, okay, you know, I can, here we are going to work. I didn't feel scared. And um, that was a relief because I felt very anxious in the two days leading up to starting work. Um, then I parked and walked in and like immediately I, it was clear the hospital just looked really different. Um, you couldn't enter the hospital in the normal way. You had to go through this one entrance and fill out a survey saying that you hadn't had symptoms and, um, and then issued the one surgical mask that you wear per day. Were you surprised at all the steps that had been taken or were you relieved? I had been receiving emails from the hospital system every day, like so many emails it was hard to go through. And so I had a pretty good sense of what they were doing to keep staff and patients safe. And all of that really did make me feel protected and relieved um, to just see how carefully the hospitals were handling the situation. But then I walked into the hospital and started making my way through and trying to reach the resident room is what we call the place where all the residents hang out and write their notes and make calls and answer pages. And it just immediately became clear that the way the hospital is designed is not good for, um, you know, anything that's spread through contact. Uh, I had was kind of kneeing and elbowing my way through the hospital, kneeing the doors and elbowing the elevator buttons, trying to not touch anything with my hands. And within the first few minutes of going in and changing into my hospital scrubs and carrying my, my breast pump bag up to the resident room and then walking into the resident room and seeing people sitting rather close to each other, you know, three minutes in and I was aware that I was in a totally different space and that everything that I was used to from the coronavirus pandemic at home of trying to minimize exposures was just going to be impossible within the hospital. 
So you didn't feel like it ultimately you were going to be able to be safe after making all that effort when you were home with your baby. I understand that around the U.S. there's a shortage of protective gear. What's been your experience with that? Well, you're right. Uh, there continues to be months into this pandemic a shortage of, in particular, the most protective equipment. So for me, when I'm working with a patient with coronavirus who in particular is intubated and on a ventilator, um, I have to wear an N95 mask and a face shield as well as a gown and gloves. And through the last couple months, there have been shortages of most of those things, and uh, there remains a shortage of gowns. And then the N95s, we, um, you know, we, we, we get one at the beginning of our shift or at the beginning of a period of time spent at a hospital, and then we reuse it again and again until it begins to lose its shape or wouldn't protect us anymore. And so when I'm on call, um, I'm taking this N95 mask and face shield with me around the hospital and putting it on, taking it off, depending on which patient I'm interacting with. Um, so there was one situation where I was kind of frustrated with this system and I wanted to leave my contaminated N95 mask um, up in my call room uh, in this standard way that we're supposed to store it, where we take a paper lunch bag and we put the, the mask facing down in this open paper lunch bag with the straps dangling out of the bag. I had it resting up there in my call room, but I was down in the emergency department. I got a call that a patient was coming in uh, potentially with an acute stroke, and then I had to go run up to my call room, grab this mask, put it on quickly, put on my face shield quickly, and then run back. You know, it took a couple minutes, and really what winds up being smarter uh, from a patient care standpoint is to carry it around. So, you know, the nature of these shortages is that we're, we're carrying with us when we're seeing patients an N95 mask in a paper lunch bag that's clipped to my belt. Now, back at home after that night, you recorded how you felt about that moment. Here's a little more from your recording. This is insane. Like, it's we're, we're months into this, and I'm still recycling this N95 covered in coronavirus and going back and forth between patients' rooms, like, and taking masks off and putting them on. And this is not... Um, like, I'm not okay with this. I don't know that I'll ever be okay with this. I would be totally thrilled to care for these patients if I could throw away my PPE at the end of the encounter. Um, and I'm, st I don't know, I'm still, I'm anxious, but I'm also just really mad. <laughs> I'm just like really mad. You're feeling a lot there. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to listen back to that. But you're right, I, I was feeling a lot. I felt a real tension between my sense of duty to serve others, the, the duty that I trained for as a physician, and my straight-up selfish desire to feel safe at work and to know that I could keep my family safe. And I think as a resident, you know, part of our training is that we don't have a lot of control over our work hours. We are fortunate to have jobs. We're, we're compensated well enough, but I, you know, we don't control our schedules. We work until the work is done. And often that means lots and lots of hours. And so I think the combination of that lack of control over the circumstances and then this new reality of the virus and not feeling safe, it, it made me feel really anxious and scared. Now, we should say that when you went home, you had a whole other routine. Let's hear some more tape about what you did when you got home from the hospital and before you held your son, Olive. You recorded this in the car driving to work. It's June 3rd, and 
the last two nights I got home with anywhere from 35 to 60 minutes to spare before he slept stripped down naked in the garage and ran up and showered and scrubbed my body with hot water as fast as I could and then emerged dripping from the shower and the first night I cried and when Olive saw me he just erupted into giggles So you were crying and he was giggling. How'd you feel about that? I cannot describe the excitement that I feel every night when I get home and see his face again. I think the contrast right now between the sterile, you know, faceless environment of the hospital and the tenderness and sweetness and quiet and warmth of my home, it's never felt more stark. And now, while we're talking, you've been back to the hospital full-time for two weeks, working 80 hours a week. What's the mood of the folks at the hospital? You know, it's interesting, and I noticed this the first time I went back and everybody else had already been doing this for several weeks or months. It feels routine. You know, the careful, constant attention to where my mouth and hands are at all times, the never seeing my colleagues' smiles, that's become routine. Carrying around my N95 in a paper bag, that's become routine. This is a lot to deal with. Did you ever think of quitting? This is hard. I I had never thought of quitting residency. Um, But I really did have a moment in late March where I wondered you know, was this worth it? And always arrived at the answer that it was, and that I was fortunate to have skills to offer other people that I had spent a lot of time building, and that I could trust that the people who ran the hospital would do everything they could to keep me safe, and that that was enough. So now you've been at work full-time for two weeks. You're going to continue on, presumably, then, and finish your neurology training. What, what's next for you? I'll be um, what's called a fellow, which is a bonus year of training after residency, um, also hard work. And my chosen subspecialty is neurohospitalist fellowship. So I will be a full-time in-hospital neurologist. And seeing more COVID-19 patients. Yeah, that'll be part of this until the pandemic is over. So what do you want for the both yourself and for the young medical school graduates you wrote about in your BMJ article who went into this without knowing what they were going to be seeing? You know, one thing that's increasingly clear to me is that the dangers I face at work are proportional to the number of people with coronavirus coming into the hospital. I'm only as safe at work as my patients are safe in their lives and their communities. And so what I want for myself and what I want for all other medical professionals is a thoughtful, coordinated response to this pandemic that offers protection to all people at risk of contracting this virus. I'm really amazed at how much my thinking on this has changed in the weeks since I returned to work. I think my fears 
have been valid and I think my current fears are still valid, but I've been caring for so many people who are facing truly extraordinary risks every day before this virus took hold in the U.S. People who are unhoused, who live in crowded conditions, who face racism, who face xenophobia every day. And increasingly, I just feel how lucky I am to have a job at all and to be able to care for people who are vulnerable during this time of such hardship. And then also just feeling aware of how many risks people are facing um, when they don't work for powerful hospitals with access to personal protective equipment. And that as states are opening up and people are returning to truly dangerous working conditions, you know, the situation at my hospital is far from ideal, but our leadership is doing everything possible to keep patients and staff safe. And I feel increasingly that I have control, that I and my family are going to be okay. And that as a nation, we need to turn our attention away from the dangers facing doctors and toward the everyday dangers faced by regular people who are now out of work because of this pandemic or who are going back to work without systems there to protect them. Eddie, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for, um, thank you for your interest. Dr. Goss wanted us to mention that the views expressed in this interview are her own and do not necessarily reflect those of her employer. For more of BMJ's COVID-19 coverage, check out bmj.com coronavirus. You'll find all of the BMJ's coronavirus coverage there available for free. We're doing other COVID stories in our podcast. There's our Talk Evidence podcast, which deal with new data, and our well-being podcast look at how health providers are coping. I'll be back with another podcast about COVID-19. It will be about efforts to find, develop, distribute, and administer vaccines as seen through a U.S. lens. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, I'm Joanne Silberner, and thanks for listening.